Welcome to Review the Future, the podcast that takes an in-depth look at the impact of technology on culture. I'm John Perry. And I'm Ted Cupper. And today we are joined by Kevin Kelly. Kevin is the founding executive editor of Wired Magazine and the author of several books. His latest, Inevitable, Understanding the 12 Technological Forces That Will Shape Our Future, is the topic of today's podcast. Kevin, welcome to the show. It's such a pleasure and honor to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Uh, so let's just start with the simple question, which is, can you give us a very brief description of what your book is? Briefly, it is a outline of the landscape of digital technology in the next 20 to 30 years. These are broad uh, contours of where we're headed. And I want to emphasize that it's primarily digital technology. I don't talk about genetics or energy, but just this uh, world of intangibles that we're so busily immersing ourselves into. Now, I feel like compared to many futurists, you come across as, as sort of an optimist, if, if maybe a bit of a cautious one. And in the beginning of the book, you coined this term protopia to describe your worldview. Uh, can you describe what that means to our audience? So the outside light bookends is a utopian, a utopia, which everybody understands is sort of this um, state of harmony with technology where you have this wonderful world and most things work and they've been ironed out. So there's few problems. I don't believe that exists or nor would I want to live there. The other side is a dystopia, which is the realm of most of the futures that we see in science fiction, Hollywood movies where they uh, collapse. These are, these are futures you don't want to live in. I suggest that there's um, a, a version of a future that I want to live in, and it's the slow incremental progress, the world where it's just a little bit better than last year, tiny, tiny, tiny little bit, and that that slow movement is accumulated over time to make civilization. And so there are going to be just as many new problems as there are solutions, but there's just a little bit more solutions than problems. And I call that protopia because it's progress, it's process, it's a slow incremental creep to betterment. Great. Yeah, I think that, I mean, that definitely feels like how it's been. Um, so I, I'm happy if that continues as you describe. Um, but let's talk about your, your method for actually making predictions. You're obviously someone who's very experienced with and knowledgeable about the world of technology throughout your long career. So one way to look at this book is you're someone who's in that world, who's projecting the trends you've observed. But actually, your book seems to be making a more fundamental claim about, quote, the physical needs and natural tendencies of bits, information, and networks, unquote. And in numerous moments in the book, you say that these trends stem from sort of the basic physics and mathematics underlying technology. Can you maybe elaborate a bit on what the underlying theory is that's guiding technology in your work? Yeah, so I, I coined this in the previous book, this idea of the technium, which is the system, the whole interlocking ecosystem of all the technologies that we have in the world. And today, to make a drill press, you kind of need a computer, and to, and to make a computer, you need a drill press. And so there is a, a, a circular logic to a lot of technologies where they're all interdependent. So we need this to make that, to make this other thing, which we need to make the first thing. And this interdependent network of technologies 
And as a whole, I call the technium. It's all this stuff together, and it all needs each other. And what we know from systems, whether it's ecosystems or any kind of mechanical systems, is that they tend to have um, recurring patterns. They, they tend to fall into – they have certain biases and tendencies. And so um, what I'm saying about this uh, system of, of technology is it has certain biases or tendencies where it tends to go in a certain direction over and over again, independent of the content, there's, there's a bias in the general form. And so my, my quest was to see what those forms are. And, and, and it was a form at the large scale, not the particulars. And so the other analogy I would use is imagine rain falling down into a valley. Well, the path of a particular drop of water on the land as it as it flows to the river at the bottom of the valley, that pathway is completely unpredictable. The pathway is unpredictable of the particular drop, but the direction is inevitable, which is downward. And so that general kind of gravity, that general directions are what I'm looking for in these technologies. And they are due to the fact that it is a physical system that generates tendencies and biases like any physical system. And so the way I try to identify what that leaning is, the tilt, is by looking at the technology where it's either being misused, abused, or unsupervised. And so uh, that means sort of like where criminals use it, where the street is using it, where kids are using it, the unofficial places, because there you can kind of get a glimpse of its of what it wants to, where it naturally is going and not where people are trying to engineer it to be in a certain direction. And that tells a lot about what's the inherent bias in these large systems, in these, in these technological systems, because they're all technological systems. They aren't individual things. They're very complicated sets of things. So an example of is, 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 is say, copying on the Internet. So, so the, the Internet inherently... By the nature of how it how logic gates work and electricity flows, it wants to make copies of things. And so copying is inherent bias in the system. And anything that can be copied, if it touches the internet, is copied and sent over the internet and virally. And so you can't stop the copying because it's just inherent in how even the internet works. And if you try to, you're working against the grain. And so you have to kind of accept the, the fact that there's going to be massive copying because that's what it kind of wants to do. And we can see that, and we saw that from the very beginning, looking at the pirates who were trying to copy things, the way in which it was really hard to prevent anything from not being copied, looking at how the underground was using it, looking at how kids wanted to use it, is very, very clear that this thing wanted to copy. So that would be an example of the kind of inevitability that I think um, is inherent, and uh, and I go through and try to identify some of these other that I think are working right now. So just to be clear, I mean, it does seem like essentially your your main strategy here is a form of observation, right? Where you're you're looking maybe in certain areas you said where that are maybe unregulated sort of, spaces or something. Yeah, of technology yeah. and and drawing maybe a few more conclusions from that. But you're sort of observing and, and, and extrapolating based upon your experience. Because there's a couple moments in the book when it feels like you're going a little bit deeper than that. Um, there's a page where you actually give a list of things that bits want. You know, bits want to be connected to other bits. Um, you sort of personify them, and you in, in, but you explain that you don't really mean to anthropomorphize the bits so much as you're making almost an evolutionary argument. Like, how fundamental is that to your worldview, or is that yeah, yeah. more a side point in your book? Um, 
So uh, the, my previous book was called What Technology Wants, where I did the Richard Dawkins trick. He did it by looking at the biological world through genes, um, pretending he was a gene, looking at well, what would the world look like if you were a gene. And I'm doing the same thing. It's the same trick of looking at the world through the eyes of technology and trying to perceive it from its point of view. And just as Dawkins, I mean, this is not the only way to see it, but this is, this was a helpful and useful way to see it. So I think in the Bits case, I was trying to do that, trying to say, well, imagine it was like a gene. What would the world look like through the eyes of Bits? It's helpful, but not necessarily fundamental. And by the way, you can look at things with more than one way. So Richard Dawkins, when he looks at his kids, he sees them as organic biological beings. He doesn't necessarily see them as genes, but he can put on those glasses and see them as a bundle of genes as well if he wants. So you can have multiple views. They're not exclusive. So I do I do put on the glasses of trying to look at technology through the eyes of technology itself because I think it's helpful, but that's just an additional uh, uh, view. And, and, I, and I do think, though, that it's, it's helpful to because you get to ask the question of, you know, what are its tendency? What does it want in that sense? It's not a conscious want. It's a want like a light, like plants want light. They lean in that direction. Okay, so it's sort of more of another lens that you that you use. Exactly right. Yeah. So there's not much quantitative data here. I'm I'm not doing any kind of quantitative forecasting, which is another way to deduce or extrapolations. The, the method is really built on, as you were saying, an observation, but trying to um, glimpse it in an unsupervised, unofficial way as a, as a way of peeking at its inherent tendencies to drift in certain directions. Okay, so moving on, let's talk about uh, something you propose in the book, that there's a fundamental similarity between two issues, one being copying and the other being tracking. Right, that there's some connection between like more piracy and less privacy, the same underlying trend girds both of those results. So can we uh, talk about that a little bit? What, where, where do you think those connections are? Well, I, I wasn't saying there was necessarily a connection. I was saying there was a parallel okay. be- between that just as the internet is the world's largest copy machine, and if it can be copied and it touches the internet, it will be copied, the internet is also the world's or just tracking machine, and if it can be tracked and touches the internet, it will be tracked. So there was this, there, there was a parallel. Not that they were necessarily being generated by the same thing, although there are, it is the same machine, the same system that's doing it. And I think for similar reasons, but the internet, the, the copied things, it was just the kind of, uh, it wasn't necessary to have a lot of sensors, but the internet is tracking things. You have to have, you have to have the things that can capture the, the data. And, and um, they were from mouse clicks to the quantified self kind of stuff that I was involved in and wearables. And I think we'll be moving into the world of virtual reality where all your bodily movements, your emotions, uh, the, the entire time that you were inside are going to be captured necessarily in order to render your virtual character. And that data can be reused for many, many data-intensive purposes. And I think, in fact, that data of our of our lives inside will become more valuable than whatever subscriptions people may be paying to to play in it or to, to operate in it or to work in it. And, and so there'll be another whole continent of big data 
and tracking being generated by the VR worlds. So the, the very nature suggests that there's going to be more and more and more tracking of our lives as we go forward. And I can't see any counter force operating right now that would reduce that technologically, would cause a reduction in that. So so we can, I think, very confidently say that, that there's going to be a lot more. And I think attempts to regulate it, like attempts to regulate copying, are going to be unsuccessful because it's inherent in the general systems that we're making that they, are, that they they capture things and we get benefits from that capture. And so there's going to be more and more tracking. And to kind of spin ahead, the question is, well, how do we make that work? Because at first glance, it seems like a horrible world where our entire lives are being tracked. The potential for abuse seems high. <laughs> it is. Right. It is high. Right. It is high, not only, but not even if it's abused, even if it's being used legitimately, it doesn't seem to be a world that you want to live in. Right. It makes you a little uncomfortable just to think about a world with you know, significantly less privacy than this world. One thing that we've talked about on this podcast before is that both of those things depend to a certain degree on information flows, on you know, who can access information and how. And flowing is one of your uh, trends, actually, right? So, right. Uh, yeah, right. And, 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 and by the way, just a quick little tangent is... I have 12 little categories, and they're kind of umbrella terms for, for many things going on in them. And, 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 and I could have recollected and reassigned and recategorized these in multiple different ways because these are all self-feeding each other. They, they're all kind of codependent on, inter intertwined. So flowing increases screening, screening includes flowing, makes more remixing, filtering. These are all in some ways recursive and, de and dependent on each other. So it's more like an ecosystem that you could just view in many different ways. And so they aren't separate little trends. They're actually all kind of braided together in one way. Right. I noticed that as I was reading that often the, the words that were, that there were chapter headings of other chapters would come up. Yeah. And it did seem like they're all more like interconnected ideas, right? But you know, an interesting framing to to get into these trends and and what talk about them. One real big tension that I feel like exists in this uh, copying tracking dichotomy is uh, in the area of intellectual property. So copying seems to, by its nature, undermine IP, while tracking, again, naturally, seems to help enforce it. So uh, what, do you, what do you think we're to make of those competing trends? That's an interesting observation. Um, let me think about that for a second. Um, I'm, I'm, I don't have an immediate thought about your, your, your dichotomy, but let me say a couple of things about copying an IP. And that is, is that um, I, I think there's the, the inherent tension in, in the internet and copying an IP is, 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 the, is the tension of the idea of owning an idea. The ownership derived from the real estate, from physical reality, rival goods where you had only one thing and, and if I sold you my boat, you had my boat. So the issue is, I, I think, with the idea of ownership in general, I, and I, I'm not sure that tracking alleviates that tension, which is that the very idea of owning ideas is problematic. And, and I think I've sort of come to this not a conclusion. I've, I'm on my way to this. I'm, ha I'm kind of halfway to this half-baked idea, which is I don't think that bits can be owned at all. That ownership is, is actually can be applied to bits. I think we have to have a different structure where there are multiple stakeholders in anybody who touches a bit has some both duties and responsibilities to it. 
So, like, if you take a Fitbit, okay, so uh, there's this little bracelet on your on your wrist that that measures, say, your physical activity. Sure. It's, it's called your, your steps. And so, on first glance, we would say, okay, that information, that those bits about my steps are mine. But I actually don't think that. I actually think that that well, certainly Fitbit company doesn't think that. Right, and, and, I, and I think that that, that um, all that that. That I have some, I have some stake in that, and I have some rights and responsibilities, and so does the device maker, and so does the the company that transmits the um, data along the wires, and so does whoever has wherever the bits go in the servers. That 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 the entire ecosystem all have some relation to that, and uh, the ownership is the wrong model for trying to understand that. Because it's the same thing that when I have an idea of, a, of an invention, we have this mistaken idea that that was my idea and then I will give it up. I will, I will get a monopoly on this idea for a short amount of time and then I give it up to the commons. Whereas I think the, the better view of it is that it's already in the commons. The natural home of all ideas is in the commons. And we might give an artificial monopoly for a very short time and then return it to the commons. Because if you look at inventions, it's very, very clear that there's simultaneous invention everywhere and that any idea will come to many people at the same time. Right. And and intellectually, I completely agree with that as that sounds like a better model than the one our world operates under now, but it's quite different from the existing legal framework yes, that, that the exactly, entire world right, right. operates under uh, where we do assign these yeah. Quite long monopolies. Well, and actually, I want to point out something else, too, that yeah. aside from the length of monopoly, which is a problem, um, and like the way that that slows down progress, and aside from the fact that its bits are not rivalrous or ideas are not rivalrous, there's the additional issue that I think you're hinting at, which is that it's like ideas are porous, right? It's hard to like draw yeah. clear lines of demarcation around exactly. ideas and, and sort of... They're, they're, they're more like networks themselves. Yeah, I, I just wanted to raise that issue as well, because... It seems like even like you were talking about assigning some sort of responsibility, I think was the word you yeah, just I, I used. I said rights, rights and responsibilities. And, and there is a part in your book where I, I quite enjoy at the ends of chapters, you have um, almost like mini scenarios, bits yeah. of science fiction. Yeah. Um, and there's one in which you describe someone who designs a, a car part mm-hmm. and then actually sort of has micro payments flowing back to them whenever that mm-hmm. car part gets used or copied, mm-hmm. which is... A radically different system from now, but it still seems to... The problem that I had with that scenario that you painted, specifically with regards to this conversation we're having now, is that still seemed to imply that the algorithms were able to draw very clear lines of who owns what. So how do we... How would we begin to tackle that problem in order to get to some kind of scheme that automatically compensated people for things like ideas? Yeah, no, you've touched on a real open question and something that I've been wrestling with that would probably be, you know, deserve its own entire book, which cannot be written by me because I don't have very many answers. But I think one of the unmet challenges of today is a re-envisioning of intellectual property and addressing the very quandaries that you're bringing up, which is um, the ideas themselves. Not only can they not really be owned, but they but they are not, they have very unclear boundaries. They're more like networks of subcomponents or other ideas and how we could trace those and define those and give them any kind of um, path or credit is is an incredibly difficult problem. 
but I do, I do think it is one that that we need to to do sooner than later and solving it would really accelerate innovation and in wealth and any any other metrics you want to measure and as far as looking around I've been asking for a very long time about alternative models I was hoping for a moment like about 10 years ago that maybe the Chinese before they adopted the west or western model that that, that would maybe they would have come up with an alternative but um, they didn't so um, uh, and I just haven't even seen it in an academic sense either of somebody just sort of rethinking this. It needs to be done. I haven't done it. It's very complicated. I don't think it's easy. If it was easy, it would have been done. But I do think that would be, you know, kind of a, a Darwin-like – we need a kind of a Darwin-like character to, to just kind of uh, give us a different theory of IP. Yeah, I agree with that. <laughs> that would be, yes. Um, right, and, and but anyway, I haven't I have not done that in this book. Yeah, so, yeah. So uh, uh, as much as I wish I, I I had or even talked about it, um, you know, you, you, you're pointing out some things where that are completely unfinished in that sense. It, it well, it's a fascinating topic, and and uh, your book does sort of like point us in the direction of thinking about it. So I, I think you mentioned in your book that asking questions is you know. <laughs> yes, this the was most a really good activity. question. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> So uh, let's return one more time to uh, surveillance and lack of privacy for a second. Right. So a quote from the book here, I'll just read it, is, evolutionarily speaking, covalence is our natural state. Right? And we've talked about covalence on this podcast before, so our listeners should be uh, aware of that term. Should we quickly but summarize what that in is? In case though? you're not, it's um, the idea that everyone's watching everyone else, so a sort of symmetrical, equal version of a surveillance state. Right? Yes, I, 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 I would agree that it's 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 there's symmetrical in the sense that you have as much information about the people who are watching you. So I can watch and, the cops, and the cops can watch me. Is the way that I like to phrase right, that. Right, I, you, right. The, the cops are filming us, but we're filming the cops. Right. right. I, I always like to imagine a cop watch website that will show me on a map where all the nearest cops are. Um, so I, I just want to challenge that statements a little bit uh, because I assume when you say our natural state, you're talking about norms in like forager societies that we've evolved to prefer and wouldn't a forager band like living in the savannah or the jungle or whatever have ample de facto privacy actually like okay not maybe at night when they're all sleeping in the same camp but in most of their day wouldn't they be separated from each other by physical space and you know, a couple of trees, and that pretty much provides you. No, no, actually, cover? no. They, 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 they're, they're very. They, they rarely do things alone. They're, they're usually always with other people, and they're usually in groups. And um, very rarely do they th- do things alone. So, so they're usually within sight of, of other people. Mm-hmm. And there's a great history on on the history of, of of the self and privacy. So that it's that is actually a very recent invention in in our own society where, where where people would have a very strong sense of the self as as an individual and mm. uh, then the emerging idea of having a private life it's really remarkable the extent to which people in those in the kind of a tribal hunter gatherer situation did not um, i mean even things like going to the bathroom they, they, they did them together. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, I, I, I've passed so many places like uh, where people in the morning would go out and they would squat in a, in, in a line and they would just be chatting as they, as they took a crap. Mm-hmm. And so we, we think of this as a really primal um, 
private thing, but it's not. Uh, it's it's actually it's a very recent idea. So that's interesting. I hadn't thought of the idea that they would have like more of a group identity. Which oh would, yeah, yeah, which that's that's I think the, the the element I was missing. Oh yeah, 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 and 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 that and then the group was was often paramount. I mean, you sacrificed yourself for the group. It was mm-hmm. you 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 were you often identified yourself first uh, in in the group. That was that was a huge part of your identity. Um, and and you know we see a little bit more of that in some of the Eastern cultures too. Um, the Japanese is, is is a famous thing where where there are still strands of that, but but in the hunter gatherer tribes, this was this was really paramount. And that sense of otherness from outside the group was really very, 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 very strong. So, so this idea, I um, mean, really, the only privacy they had was anything happening in their heads. But, but in terms of uh, outward stuff, everybody knew everything about them. And, um, and, and so, my point is, is that for millions of years, or if not hundreds of thousands of years, however you want to define the beginning of humanity, we have we lived like that, and we're comfortable like that. And and therefore, this brief blip into where we you know we have closed doors is. I mean, I think there's advantages to it. By the way, I mean, I want to say very, very clearly that the invention of the self and the privacy actually birthed a lot of what we find good in the world today. But that it is very, very recent. And so that if we added this, or if we transformed what we had and added or returned back to to this, I don't think is. I think we'll still be comfortable, but but there will be a cost to it too. Yeah, I was just thinking it would it will take culture time to adjust because th- it, this has been a primarily a cultural change, right? Like yeah, yeah. we start to think of ourselves as individuals rather than as members right. of a group, and that's something that's fairly Western, I think. Right, or, right, you know, right. not that they don't experience it elsewhere, but it seems like it happened in the Western world more completely and, and right, earlier. Right. And uh, once you start thinking of yourself that way, then you start desiring things like right. alone time, privacy. Right. And so I, I have, I have no desire to, to kind of go back to that uh, earlier position. And what, what I'm suggesting is that I think we can invent tools and technologies and, and, and regulations as well that would allow us to share certain aspects or share information in certain ways that can be used collectively or that we can use it to track or monitor and retain some aspects of that that are important to us. And so to me, privacy is not this weird binary thing like you're private or you're not. It's like off or on. It's actually, first of all, it's not a single thing. There's probably a whole bundle of various nuanced elements that are that are wrapped up in this. And secondly, they're probably all have gradations and aren't just binary in that sense. And so um, I, I think what we'll come to do is start to tease apart what those different elements are and we'll figure out ways that you can share or track some stuff without affecting the other aspects of it and you know some of the cryptological um, ways of doing aggregation or doing aggregation so you can't unaggregate it and i mean i think there's a whole new frontier of trying to tackle this in ways so that we actually can track certain aspects of certain things without impinging on aspects of other things that we find valuable that we haven't even identified yet yeah, I mean, I think to me, it does seem to have some of the similarities to the the challenge of intellectual property. Drawing boundaries again in this world of flowing information seems seems difficult, but right. I, I do exactly. think it's the right direction. Let's move on because our time is escaping us here and talk about a totally different, uh, well, maybe not totally different topic, which is AI. One of your trends is cognifying, sort of adding intelligence to everything. 
And I want to focus in on first one small issue that, that popped out at me is that there seem to be a couple forces in your book that seem to suggest a possible uh, winner-take-all market in the mm-hmm. field of AI? Because you, yeah. you, you mentioned the powerful network effects, right? How an mm-hmm. AI gets more powerful, the more people use it. Yeah. And then also in your accessing chapter, um, you talk about, you know, everything's moving towards subscription services and subscription mm-hmm. services mm-hmm. also have kind of this thing where... Like the friction of changing services. Yeah, yeah. You, you, exactly. and especially if there's an AI involved, you train it and then it gets maybe hard to, <laughs> to leave it. You, you compared right. it almost to leaving a marriage. So right. should, we, should we be concerned about a, like a monopolistic market in AI? Is this... Is yeah. some, an issue that you're worried about at all? I have some concerns and worries about AI, but, but that's not one of them. And here's why is, um, so these are network effects. This is a kind of a term of uh, industry that means that, you know, as you said, that, that as things gain in scale, that they actually attract more. And so that they, uh, that becomes an attractor, so they get, become even bigger. And then you have a dominance of one or two kind of big players. And the reason I'm not worried is several. One is because while they balloon and uh, expand very rapidly, they also basically can collapse in the same at the same speed. And that collapse usually becomes from a disruptor from outside um, who is doing something completely different. And so... The second thing I want to say about that is, unlike industrial monopolies, these what I call natural monopolies, they keep lowering prices. They're, they're, they, they give the, the user more and more benefits, unlike, say, the industrial monopolies where they were using the monopoly to raise prices. So here you have this weird thing where, it's, where it says the, the better they get, the cheaper they get for everybody. So how can you so, – so what's the harm? And so wh- wh- what happens is that in these natural monopolies is that, that they're displaced by something – completely outside of them. So the first, in the tech area, the first natural monopoly was IBM. And if you try to make a computer to fight against IBM, you just lost. And IBM became bigger and bigger. But they were toppled, basically, not by a computer company, but by a software company. So then Microsoft became the thing. And there were many, many companies tried to compete against them, making an OS, and they all lost. But they were not displaced by a software company. They were displaced by a search company, Google. And so who can compete against Google, a search company? You're always going to lose. But then Facebook comes along and they become big. And so there is a sense of the outsiders. So in AI, what we're going to see is there'll be all the varieties and specialties of AI. And in each little category, there'll be uh, some dominant players. But all it takes is something someone from outside of that system industry to come along and then and then it collapses very fast and we move. So these so the point is these are ephemeral. They have very short time spans, a decade or so, and then they're they're no longer dominant because the the you know the, the center of gravity has moved. And so they're not long lasting and while they're here, they're incredibly beneficial. They institute a standards, they are lowering prices. And so with those three things, um, I'm not worried about them because uh, what will happen in AI, like right now um, one of the essential ingredients to doing the kind of AI that's being done right now with neural nets is you need big data. Turns out that you can't get by with like a thousand uh, points in your data uh, training sets. You needed like millions, and so all the companies that had big data—Google and Microsoft and Baidu, Amazon—were the ones who are doing AI because they've got that rocket fuel, all those the big data for training sets. But humans don't. Uh, learn with a million training sets. Uh, uh, a human toddler can tell the difference between a dog and a cat with a set of, of less than 12 examples. 
And so somebody along the line will figure out how to do some AI using really tiny ah. micro training sets, and they'll they'll completely upset. They'll topple the dominant oligarchies, and and um, they'll start something new. And so I, I, I actually think that there's a, a natural advantage to having these natural monopolies around for the couple decades that they're around. One thing we've talked about here is like the philosophical difference between Google and Facebook being like more data versus better data, mm -hmm. you know, like tricking your users into providing you with good data is the Facebook model where it's just yeah. suck it up and let the computer sort it seems to right, be the right, Google right, right. method. And uh, I like what you just said, because it, it implies that both of those could be disrupted at once by oh, better, yeah. better yeah. algorithm. Oh, well, this algorithm learns quicker with less data. Absolutely. If, if, if it's 10 times better, I mean, that's why people move to Google. I mean, I remember it was Hal Varian, who's now at Google, who's at Berkeley, and he was telling me about this new search engine. And I was saying, you know, like, search, I have, well, there's Alta Vista. Why do you need Google? Are we moving to 1998 well, now? Yeah, right. Like, but, it, okay. but it was like, it was like 10 times better. And so mm -hmm. we switched over. And oh, yeah, all you need is something that's 10 times better, and people will move, right. um, even though the costs are high. Um, there, there, there is that, there is that threshold, and 10x seems to be about it. The history that you just gave, you know, started with computers and then software and then search. Um, but there are people that think, you know, AI as it emerges is something sort of fundamentally different. And I'm, I know that you have heard, and you certainly mentioned in your book the the fears that many people have, famous people among them, including Hawking and Musk, about the possibility of an actual intelligence explosion, where the AI gets so good that it actually, you know, takes over the world very quickly through some sort of recursive self-improvement. And you mentioned this in the book, I think for completeness, but you also kind of dismiss it. Um, but you don't really give your reasoning in this book, at least. I was wondering if you could say what your opinion is here, like why you feel that this isn't really a big threat. Yeah, yeah. I dismissed it without a lot of defense, partly because in our previous book, I did address it a little bit, and partly because it required an entire... It's booklet. a big topic. Okay, yeah. and we may not but have time for that today. Maybe we just a brief. Time, but, but, but just briefly, um, briefly, I, th I think the the one error that I want to kind of address, and, and there's others, but the one that I think is important, and I do address in the book a little bit, is this is the idea of the, the very term "smarter than humans." I just I just really rebel against that because it suggests that. Uh, human intelligence is a single dimension, and people like Nick Wallstrom in his book has a, a line, a single line of intelligence. It's IQ, and at the low end is like a rat, and then there's a chimp, and then there's an idiot, and then there's an average person, and then there's a genius, and this IQ is in increasing over the length of it, and you know then there's a super AI. And that is just so fundamentally wrong because – Intelligence is not a single dimension. It's a multidimensional, variant, very complex suite of different nodes and methods of thinking that um, vary between individuals. And then different animals have different uh, symphonies with different uh, collections of cognitive notes. And in some cases, those notes may be more than greater than us in humans, like uh, the squirrels have a really long-term memory so they can remember where they buried their nuts. And other times they'll be much dimmer than us, but they have their own collection. And when we make AI, what we're doing is, is we're going to engineer it so that in some types of cognition, they'll be extremely high, much higher than us in certain areas. And then other places they, they, they won't be as strong because 
it's more powerful when they think different. The whole, you know, your calculator is smarter than you are right now in arithmetic, and Google's smarter than you are in long-term memory. And we've engineered this, so, so that's its advantage. The reason why we're going to put AI into cars is because they're not going to think like humans. They're, they're thinking differently. And so, and so the, the thing about it is, is, is the, the, the fallacy is this idea that there's, the human intelligence is a general-purpose intelligence. We're going to have a Copernican revolution as we make all these AIs, and we're going to realize that we're not like the the Earth and all these other uh, intelligences are circling around us. Uh, <laughs> we're going to understand that that we're out in the corner of the galaxy. We're aware, way in the corner in terms. Of, we have a very specific type of intelligence that's involved on this planet for our survival, and that there really isn't such a thing. As a general purpose intelligences, just like there's not a general purpose organism, there are no organisms that are general purpose. They're all specific for their survival, and our and we uh, believe that we're general purpose because we don't have uh, we we have a case of one, and so we imagine that that our that our intelligence is some kind of universal general purpose thing, but it's actually a very specific bundle of particular kinds of thinking and that we're going to in, invent a million other different species and we'll populate that possibility space of all the different kinds of thinkings and we'll realize that we're just off in the corner. Well, I, I think that's, uh, I mean, I think you raise a very important issue and I, I will resist doing follow-up because as, as you said, uh, we got time? It, it's a long argument possibly and I, I will make a note to, to check out your previous book and we, we may discuss that in the future on the podcast actually. But yeah, let's let's move along to some other topics. I think, um, you know, th- I'm just going to jump to this because I thought this was interesting. There's this one part in here where you mention a VR technology that I have not heard of. Having VR without a headset at all. Mm-hmm. It's one of your scenarios. And you describe, mm-hmm. um, let's see, it says, uh, a 3D image projects directly into my eyes from tiny light sources that peek from the corner of my rooms, mm-hmm. all without the need of something in front of my face. Now, I assume that you're mm-hmm. basing this on some demo or something that you saw could you elaborate on that i'm not i did not see anything like that i i was i was just imagining the the possibility it seems to me to be a, a plausible thing which you know would require a crazy amount of computation you'd have to read your eye and where it's looking and then you know basically um send little pulses in it so it's it's completely an imaginary um speculation Okay, but it's is it tied at all to the the magic leap technology? Or no, sort of, no, no. And um, one of the things I I, I I was unable to do for space reasons in the magic leap was to give enough caveats in uh, what they were talking about. So 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 the problem with magic leap is basically they refused to describe how they're doing things. And so a lot of my description is from reverse engineering, looking at what other people are doing, looking at what I saw. And so primarily I was trying to describe what I saw. Magic Leap uses the term light field and they they claim that they're projecting without screens, but in fact that is incorrect. They have they're, they're, they're transparent glasses. They're, 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 there's the glass screen in between your eye and the light source. Mm. Um, so they are not doing that, although they claim they are doing that. Um, so rather than have this big fight with them, I just decided to describe what I saw happening versus what they claimed that they were doing. So they are not doing that. But I think somebody could do that in the future. I mean, again, it would require you know, mathematics and computation beyond what we're doing right now in real time. I mean, obviously, it's, there's going to be a drive to, 
to make this stuff as seamless as possible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, to me though, it just seemed like, well, that's that's where it's going to go to. Like, you know, if you took a time travel two hundred years in the future, of course they're going to have holographic displays that you. Right, don't, right. Like, if you can actually project light fields into space, then you'd theoretically be able to like walk right. around the projection and and see it from all angles, right? Exactly. That's, right. That's right. how that would work in theory. I don't. I don't know if. I don't think anyone's actually doing it right now. No, they're, yeah. they're not. Right. Yeah. As far as I know, yeah. I mean, um, yeah. yeah. There may be somebody in the basement, but yeah, <laughs> that, that's the theory. Is is if you have the light field and you can calculate it, and then you can actually look at their eyes and see exactly where they're glancing, and then you know work back. And then of course it has to be the fact that you have lasers shooting into your eyes, and so there's you know there's a whole other thing about getting the impulses correct so they don't burn the retinas. You know, so there's a lot <laughs> that has to happen before that comes along, but it seems to me to be physically possible. Got it. Yeah, that sounds cool. All right, so we have a bunch more questions, but I don't want to keep you too long. So I'm going to jump to our last question for you, which is a little bit of a softball, but we're we're genuinely interested in this. So I imagine that, you know, you being who you are, you get to see all the coolest tech demos out there. So I just want to ask you, what is the coolest new technology mm. that you've seen recently? So, so, so I hate to dispel your image of me, but I actually try <laughs> to avoid tech demos as much as I can. Sure. Um, and, and the reason is that um, I find that it just, it, it, to appreciate it, it, it requires, it requ- it's like a full-time job to actually <laughs> make sense of, of working at the tech demos because sure. there is still a lot of magic and BS going on. And you and, and I'm, I spend most of my time trying to pierce that. And, and I find that I can only do that if I've seen like 10 other demos in that same area that I can actually um, disentangle what I'm looking at right now. Hmm. And so that's not my full-time job. And um, seeing one every now and then is uh, not helpful to me unless I'm kind of you know, trying to do something. I'll take a particular area like VR, and then I'll look at all of them. And then I can do the nice comparative and sort well, them out. Um, um, if you don't mind me jumping in, just because we only have three minutes yeah, yeah. here. Why don't we reframe the question? Since, okay. since um, <laughs> I just want to get something good. Yeah, because there's a lot of excitement in running through the book I, yeah, um, yeah, 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 about yeah, yeah. technology in general, even if it's not about okay. a specific demo. So sure. of all these trends, like, what are you most yeah. excited to see? Yeah. That's fair. That's a good question. I am genuinely most excited about artificial intelligence, and it is the one area where I'm trying to keep up. And um, I'm excited because I think that it is fundamentally so transformative that it really will touch every single aspect of our lives and will overturn in the long term all of them. And uh, to, to a degree that we will find hard to appreciate right now. I don't believe in this idea of the super AI intelligence explosion, but even without that, it's going to have a major transformative role in, in our lives. And, and and it's starting to move fairly fast. So I think even um, year by year, we're going to see and, and, and experiences the, the benefits and the new problems that it brings. Well, uh, I think that's a good place to end. So uh, I want to give... A big plug to this book. It's sort of like the ultimate futurology listicle, almost. I mean, I, I would, <laughs> I certainly will be recommending this to anyone I know who's, uh, you know, interested in this and maybe is not familiar with all these trends because I, I feel like it's a great primer on a lot. Yeah, of different it's a really topics. good uh, intro to a sort of litany of futurist ideas. 
And uh, yeah, I mean, I made a lot of notes while reading it. It was a lot of food for thought. And I wish we had more time to talk with you. But uh, unfortunately, uh, we need to call it there. Um, but thank you so much, uh, Kevin, for coming on the show. It's been a real pleasure. I love the conversation with you guys. It's, it's so great to have really good questions, which you obviously have been able to produce. And, and um, I, I'm, I'm delighted. I'd love to come back sometime and continue the conversation. So really, thanks for having me. Oh, thanks very much. We may take you up on that. Sure thing. Okay, that wraps up our interview with Kevin Kelly about his book, Inevitable, Understanding the 12 Technological Forces That Will Shape Our Future. You might have noticed we didn't ask a specific question in this podcast. Uh, we usually do, but we thought we'd focus on the topics in his book, which are kind of varied and therefore didn't make sense to, to focus too tightly on one thing. Um, as always, you can find us online. We're on Twitter at RTF underscore podcast. Uh, we're on Facebook at facebook.com slash review the future. Uh, we have our website, reviewthefuture.com, and you can email us at feedback at reviewthefuture.com. Please contact us. We love to hear from you guys. If you ask a good question, we'll talk about it on the air. Uh, so until next time, I'm John Perry. I'm Ted Cover, And you've been listening to Review the Future. To subscribe or leave a comment on this episode, please visit reviewthefuture.com. You can also send emails to feedback at reviewthefuture.com. Thanks for listening.